Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. We're joined again today by Director of Global Macro, Urian Timmer, for his weekly Global Macro and Markets update. On today's episode, Urian talks about the Fed's latest moves and looks ahead to the U.S. midterm elections. Please note this episode was recorded on November 7th, one day ahead of the November 8th election day. Back to the Fed's latest moves, Urian says its mandate is twofold right now. He says the Fed is solving for getting inflation back to 2%, and the market is solving for the Fed getting things done as soon as possible so we don't get a recession and instead we get a soft landing. Among other insights shared today with host Pamela Ritchie, Urian discusses commodities, a potential rally for bonds, and the expansion story. Stay tuned for this and more. As per usual, Urian will be sharing some charts, so please head to at Timmer Fidelity on Twitter to follow along. Today's podcast was recorded on November 7, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Shall we begin, perhaps, just, I wouldn't mind just talking about the midterm elections. We're watching the dollar right now, which is which is off. Um, hard to know whether that's pointing to some version of uncertainty about the election results or how the process might go. What What, what is your take there? Yeah, uh, so we can pull up slide 21. The slide USD chart was tweeted by Urian on November 9th. Um, I'm not sure what's driving the, the relative weakness in the dollar, if we can call it that, but... There is an interesting divergence uh, opening up on the chart, and you know us chartists are always looking for intermarket relationships, you know, non-confirmations, divergences, um, and what you can see here is that you know the purple line <clears throat> is the expected terminal rate for the Fed, and of course you know we had the FOMC meeting last week where where Fed Chair Powell moved the goalposts uh, yet again, and now the expectation is that the Fed will go above five percent, which you can see in the purple line there. Um, and until recently, the dollar was in lockstep with that line for obvious reasons, which is that the Fed is raising rates very aggressively, more aggressively than the major other you know, central bank regions like Europe and certainly Japan, of course, also China, which are easing policy. And that rate differential drives the dollar higher. Uh, and that's all you know, perfectly logical. But at this point, the dollar is making lower highs, <clears throat> even though that terminal rate is making higher highs. And usually that's a sign <clears throat> that the, the trend is getting more exhausted, if you will. Um, and so that would be a hopeful sign that maybe financial conditions will stop seizing up. So, But back to your question about the election, <clears throat> I'm not sure uh, how much of that you know, is, is related to that. Um, uh, as opposed to maybe, you know, China finally reopening after this zero COVID policy and maybe uh, the U.S. getting closer to the end. But we do have an, an election, of course, um, this week. Um, and it does look likely that 
the Republicans will take the House from the House of Congress or um, from um, from the Democrats, which is very typical in the first midterm after you know a, a new a new presidential election, especially when uh, that presidential party uh, sweeps all houses. Um, so I think at a minimum, the expectation is that uh, the Democrats will <clears throat> lose the House, and it's even possible that they will lose the Senate. And I think so. For me, the bigger the biggest takeaway for that is that you know we know two patterns in the markets. Um, in terms of the election cycle. One is the presidential cycle itself, which is a, a obviously a four-year cycle. And what we know from studying history, which you know I've gone back to like the 1850s or even the late 1700s in studying election outcomes uh, of the market, is that the third and fourth year of a presidential cycle tend to be the strongest, and especially the third one. And of course, next year will be the third year, so that's that's kind of a glass half full interpretation of where we are currently in the markets, of course, because it would suggest a, a better outcome next year, uh, all else being equal, of course, which is a huge caveat that is especially true uh, given all the stuff that's happening this time around. But typically the second half of a presidential term tend to be more favorable for the stock market because at that point, the party in power is just trying to get reelected, and so they tend to do make policy changes that make everyone feel happier, you know, economically. So, so, so that that's one of them. Then the other one is that markets <clears throat> generally prefer gridlock over a, a, a very unified um, outcome. And you know, that's not a political statement. I'm not trying to be cynical, but that's just you know, studying several hundred years of of, of election cycles. Uh, the markets tend to you know do best when there is some sort of divided government. And I think that's just the market saying to the government, you know, stay out of my business, let me run my business, don't overregulate. I mean, I, I think maybe that's kind of uh, an overly libertarian view of it, not that I'm a libertarian, but, but I think that's generally the sense. And that, I think that's especially applicable today because, you know, you're, you're in the UK, you know all about, you know, the, the story there a few weeks ago or a month ago with, with the, with the very short-lived trust government trying to, uh, you know, uh, in, you know, um, launch tax cuts that were basically not funded. And then, of course, the guilt market and the pound, um, you know, uh, the bot vigilantes reared their heads and uh, made a quick end to that. Um, and I think it's, it was the market saying, too much fiscal, like just just leave it alone, stop stop doing so much fiscal. And of course, in the U.S. and elsewhere during COVID, we had a lot of fiscal stimulus and relief, which was necessary, of course, um, combined with monetary policy um, stimulus. But I think there's a sense here as well as fiscal fatigue. Maybe, maybe I'll come up with that as as the title of yeah, my next report. Um, <clears throat> that you know, it's like just just stop doing stuff. Um, and so two years of gridlock, if that's what we end up with uh, after this week's midterm, uh, would produce exactly some calm on the fiscal front. And I think the markets would, would welcome that because essentially market, the economy was, in retrospect, probably overstimulated <clears throat> during COVID, during the lockdowns. And now, of course, we're paying the price through higher inflation and therefore a very, um, a very restrictive Federal Reserve. Fascinating. Um, I'm just curious when you go back sort of hundreds of years, if there's any data in there of how markets 
are doing in sort of the third year of a presidency after a pandemic, for instance, which only happens every hundred years or so. But um, that's that's mostly uh, just kind of an offside comment. I'm, I'm curious. We, we hear a lot about the debt ceiling. We hear a lot about parliamentary one way or the other on, on what it's going to mean this time. I mean, it usually squeaks by. Um, anything different this time? Yeah, so I, I think that would be probably the most significant implication of if the election turns out the way the experts expect, and I'm certainly not one of them. But if we do get that gridlocked uh, Congress, um, I think obviously some of the fiscal policies that President Biden is proposing now, including sort of business unfriendly ones like the tax on on buybacks and again, not making any political statements here, but that would be obviously welcomed by the market. But one risk would be that you would have these debt ceiling shenanigans like we always get when we have a divided government. Um, and you know, you could have like government shutdowns and all of this nonsense. Um, and so that, that becomes a risk. But you know, you and I have had this conversation before and you know, these things always kind of come up. And they always end up going away because, um, you know, if I mean, sane people in Washington, not that everyone is sane there, <clears throat> at the end of the day, when the government gets shut down and people can't get their paychecks, like, you know, it, it forces them to come to the table and they do, they make some kind of agreement that makes everyone look good um, and they, they kick the can down the road. And that's what happens every single time. And so I'm not particularly worried for about that maybe becoming like a black swan type of event. So let's go to to the Fed. Um, it's the first time that we get the chance to ask you um, about last week um, and certainly about the reaction by markets. Um, Jay Powell did. At this point, we kind of have parsed through bits and pieces of it. But, you know, what is the most salient thing for you that came out of the Fed yeah. meeting from last week that, that maybe we haven't thought about yet? Yeah, so uh, slide three. The next few slides, the Fed and the market and equity valuation, were tweeted on November 8th. I think the biggest takeaway is that, A, um, you know, Powell or, and the Fed, they are solving, so kind of a very macro way of thinking about the whole story in the markets right now is that the Fed is solving for getting inflation back to 2%. Like that's the Fed's number one mission. It is willing to sacrifice the economy to get there because it realizes correctly that a short-term cyclical recession is less bad than long-term structural inflation. So, so that's what the Fed is solving for. The market is solving for the Fed getting done as soon as possible so that we don't get a recession um, and we get a soft landing and the markets can sort of find their footing. And what those two mandates have in common is inflation, right? Because the Fed is solving for inflation, the market is solving for the Fed to, 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 to be done. And that means that what happens to inflation going forward is um, extremely critical. And I'm stating the obvious because that's been the case for, for months now, but how quickly the inflation rate will turn down uh, and it is expected to turn down in the coming months and even weeks. I mean, I think the CPI is coming out very sh shortly. Um, <clears throat> and that will inform how long the Fed has to stay up there. And, and that's kind of what I was leading to earlier. And you can see that in this chart, right? That orange line, so the, 
The gold line is the actual Fed funds rate, which is now at three and seven eighths. Um, the orange line is the expected path of the funds rate, uh, expected to go now above 5% and then come back down to about three and five eighths or so in 2024, 2025. And that's, it may not seem like much to see that, that kink in the curve, but I think that's critically important for the markets because the stock market is trading at a valuation that implies that that, that, the, the, that orange line after the kink is the one that it's solving for. So, so the market's trading at a 16 multiple and it should be trading at a 14 multiple uh, based on interest rates. And this is the formula I've shown in the past. And the difference between those two numbers, which is two PE points, is basically the difference between where the Fed is going to go in terms of its terminal rate and where it's, it's expected to go after that. And so that's a long way of saying that it, the risk to the market is that the Fed has to go beyond 5% like it is now priced in, but it has to stay there because inflation is not, it's not that inflation won't be coming down, but it needs to come all the way down to 2% for the Fed to really kind of, you know, let go of a super tight policy. And that was kind of the new thing that came out of the FOMC meeting is, is Jay Powell saying, <clears throat> it's not just that inflation has to come down, which obviously it, it, it is and it will, um, but it has to go all the way down to its target before it's going to kind of, you know, let the reins go on this very restrictive policy. And I think that's kind of the disconnect right now in the stock market um, is that um, the market expects the Fed to very quickly return to some kind of neutral policy. And if it turns out that the Fed's going to stay well above neutral for a long time, just until that inflation rate does come down, then the market may still be kind of wrong-footed here a little bit. I mean, and and I, actually, if I can just show yeah, slide 24, is just another, <clears throat> another way of, of showing that. Sorry. Um, you can see here the difference between uh, the actual P.E. ratio, which is the gray line, and my, my two little models there based on the two-year nominal yield and the 10-year real yield, uh, those two models suggest we should be around 14x and we're at 16x. And on, in early January, when the stock market peaked, the PE was 20 and a half. Um, and uh, it should be at around 14 now, but it's at 16. What 16 implies it implies a real yield of three quarters of a percent instead of one and a half percent. And it implies a two year yield of three and a half instead of four and a half, which is exactly where they would be, again, going back to that Fed funds forward curve chart after that, that kink has, has played out. And so that I think is kind of how I'm wrapping my head around why is the market here when it should be there? Okay. So, but where can you point us to within the market that that may be really I mean, we are starting to hear of all kinds of layoffs. We're starting to hear of I mean, there's certain tech companies that are off by 70 percent. So which areas of the market are holding that P.E. up? Slide 22. Here, Yearing refers to two slides, sector returns and sector correlation, both tweeted on November 9th. So we're getting increasing bifurcation now uh, among the, the, the 11 sectors in the S&P 500. So energy is clearly the undisputed winner. You see that on the top there. Healthcare, you know, as a more defensive sector has done quite well. 
Utilities had done well, but they've come down a little bit as interest rates started to shoot up. And um, you know, telecom, real estate, um, all the interest rate sensitive stuff is is kind of down. So you're seeing. So so this chart shows the 11 sectors indexed back to the pre-COVID all-time high in February of 2020, 2020, and it just shows you kind of how they all zigged and zagged over the last couple of years and, and where they are now. But you can see that the spread between winner and loser um, is becoming increasingly large. And uh, maybe if we pull up slide 12, there's another way of kind of showing uh, how sectors are behaving. Um, and so in this chart, I show the inflation rate on the top, and in the bottom, I show um, these are like the 24 industry groups, their five-year correlation to the CPI. And you can see that energy, as we know, of course, is an inflation hedge. I mean, that it always is pretty much. But you can see that its correlation to the inflation rate, its relative return, the inflation rate is, is near 100%. So it is like perfectly, perfectly, it's a perfect hedge against high inflation. And on the other side, you see software and services, retailing media, sort of the consumer sectors and the tech sectors um, are perfectly negatively correlated to high inflation. And so if you think about, okay, at some point inflation is going to come down, either the easy way through a soft landing or the hard way because the Fed, you know, is, is, is creating a recession, which will probably help you know, um, uh, settle down inflation. Um, at some point, there's going to be an opportunity here between these two sides. In other words, sell energy and buy the consumer and, and tech, uh, in tech sectors and groups. Uh, so to me, that becomes the next big trade. But we need to see inflation. We, we need to see the whites in the eyes of inflation first. Uh, and so far, we're not quite seeing it. Okay, fascinating. So the question actually that was coming in, I was going to ask you, was was exactly on sort of the oil commodity price side of things, um, which is a different story to the equities. Actually, I might I might just go ahead and, and put that to you, sort of the price side of things. Yeah. So I mean, commodities, um, you know, they're they're obviously the, the prices are down, and and one way of of kind of illustrating that is in slide nine. The next slide, ISM, was tweeted by Urian on November eighth. So, you know, so obviously we're looking for signs that inflation is peaking uh, and then we're looking for signs for how quickly it can come down, because the faster it comes down, the faster the Fed will be done and the faster we can all kind of go home and and enjoy, you know, some positive returns. Um, so we're looking for like early, early warning signs or early indications. And here is a good one, actually. So the goods producing side of the U.S. economy. Uh, as measured by the ISM or the PMI, the Purchasing Managers Index, uh, shows that the manufacturing side is already in a, a at a point of deflation, actually. And we see this in some commodities. We see this in used car prices. Uh, so prices in the goods producing side of the economy are coming down. So this this chart here shows the level of the ISM index. So it's a manufacturing survey in the horizontal, and the prices paid component is in the vertical measured as a deviation from the mean. And you can see that black arrow. So the blue arrow was the post-financial crisis recovery. Uh, and the black arrow is the post-COVID lockdown recovery. And they tend to go from lower left to upper right, back to lower left. So the cyclical side of the economy tends to be boom bust, right? So you tend to see inflation, deflation. But the point here is that there are no signs of stagflation in the manufacturing 
part of the economy. I mean, prices are coming down as economic activity is coming down. Now, I feel like we've been uh, talking around stagflation anyway for a while. Well, There's well, no yes. so, so on the services side, uh, you know, that's where the stickiness is in inflation, right? So it's in rents, owner's equivalent rent, which, which is the largest component of core inflation. That's where, so we're seeing the inflation on the services side. So I don't mean to suggest that all inflation is coming down because of this chart. The manufacturing industry is only a small part of the economy, but it's, it's at least a, a part that is very cyclical and it shows that at least there, uh, we're seeing price deflation. We're not seeing it on the services side yet, but again, the Fed's operating with all these very lagging indicators. If you think about rents, you know, you sign a lease and that's going to be your rent for the next year, presumably. Uh, so it takes a while for the for the to, for the the reaction function of policy to to kick in, and so you know one of the risks always with the Fed cycle is that the Fed's like barreling down the highway, looking in the rearview mirror um, because it's looking at lagging indicators. Employment, inflation are both lagging indicators, and it creates the risk of a policy error. And certainly this time around, that's no different because the Fed waited too long to raise rates, and now it has to do everything all at once, and that does create risk. But is, um, can we talk a little bit about growth, as in growth of the economy, or you know, maybe going in the other direction if we're going to be talking about recession, but sort of the role of inflation alongside the, infl the expansion story? Uh, <clears throat> yes, um, so <clears throat> I think, for instance, let's just take a look at earnings. Um, by 28. And this next slide, earning estimates, was tweeted on November 11th. You know, in inflation-adjusted terms, earnings growth is already negative. We're already in a contraction because, you know, earnings growth is, you know, a couple of percent um, and inflation is, you know, eight uh, percent. But earnings are not really seen of uh, at, in, in terms of in, in real terms, right? Earnings tend to be a nominal concept because Companies sell into the nominal economy, <clears throat> and so the nominal effects, the inflationary effects, can can kind of mask underlying weakness, um, and 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 that's okay. But ultimately, the markets sort of see through that, and they will just pay less for those earnings because they know it's coming. The earnings growth may be coming from inflation rather than from actually organic underlying growth. But it's interesting that the 2023 estimate for earnings in the S&P is, is falling pretty hard now. It was $247 a share a few months ago. It's <clears throat> down to $231 a share now. So the earnings picture, <clears throat> um, markets are still expecting earnings growth, but that growth, expected growth estimate is coming way down. Um, so, you know, we're clearly not yet in a recession. I mean, you look at the unemployment rate, 3.3%. 7%, you look at the, the JOLTS report, 1.9 job openings still for every job seeker. So companies are hiring less. We, we see that all over the news. You, we hear that in the earnings report. But you don't have the mass layoffs, uh, at least not yet. Hopefully they don't come. And um, and I think, you know, the, the needle that the Fed is trying to thread here on the growth side <clears throat> is um, I think it is hoping – that the imbalance of the number of job openings per job seeker can go down to some sort of equilibrium where it's one-to-one -one instead of two-to-one without actually even raising the unemployment rate. So for the Fed, the ultimate 
the ultimate you know card yeah. trick would be would be to 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 achieve its goal without the unemployment rate going up just because the there's so much supply demand imbalance be, between uh, how many jobs are are open and of course that stems back to the covid days <clears throat> where 3 million baby boomers left the labor force right so there's a shortage of labor and so the fed I don't think the Fed is trying to get people to lose their jobs, but it's trying to have a situation where there are fewer job openings for those people looking for jobs, and that that will then um, you know, equalize the, the supply-demand imbalance, which will then equalize wages and spending, uh, and then bring inflation down. So I think that is the, that is the, 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 the hat trick that the Fed is trying to achieve here. Sort of incredible. Um... You, you spoke a little bit about the what you're seeing in terms of sectors themselves starting to have actual changes. We're not seeing lump trades quite in the same way. Um, but talk a little bit more about sector correlations as well as inflation trends. I mean, what what have we seen? What <coughs> might we see going forward as as perhaps we see inflation going the other way? Well, I think, uh, you know, as, as I showed in the earlier chart with the correlation, I think the biggest opportunity, if inflation does go away and interest rates can start coming down, and I do still think that the bond market looks very attractive here. You know, we, we can get over 4% across the entire term structure. Um, so, but, you know, like the, the long duration stocks, like the secular growers, including the big tech companies, which, of course, had some notable blow-ups in the last um, earnings season, um, those, those stocks require low interest rates because they, are, they have a very long duration. So you are discounting a longer series of cash flows with that cost of capital than you might, for instance, the energy sector or the industrial sector, which has a shorter, more cyclical you know, uh, runway. Uh, but the long, like the fangs and the, you know, healthcare and other growth areas tend to have a much longer runway. So, so they are more sensitive to rates going up or down in terms of what people are willing to pay for their earnings. And I think, you know, especially as these big tech names have really come down a lot this year, um, uh, that I think is where the opportunity would be going forward. But we need to get from here to there first. Um, um, and that, and you know, we don't know how how smooth or or jagged that path will be. And certainly, this week's CPI report uh, will hopefully give us more of a sense. Okay. And I think that's actually a, a more important news event than the than the midterm election. <laughs> yeah, interesting. It's a busy week. It's quite a week. Okay, I'll get just maybe one or two questions in if we can. So, if the Fed rate stays historically high, you're in for years. Can we expect a small bond market? rally yeah so the longer the fed would stay <clears throat> so again um let's bring back slide three and these last two slides the fed and the market and the yield curve were tweeted on november 8th so there's this notion of what is the neutral rate right and the neutral rate's probably between three and four percent um and the fed is going to go to above five and at some point, it will go back to three to four percent because that's kind of the equilibrium uh, over the very long term. But the longer the Fed stays above that line, <clears throat> obviously, the greater the risk will become that we do get a recession, right? And we see that in the yield curve, um, uh, which is very <clears throat> inverted. <clears throat> excuse me. 
Uh, we see that in many other indicators as well. So, so the risk is that we get a recession sometime next year. And even that, even if we know that with absolute certainty, it still doesn't really inform us uh, about the stock market because, you know, we don't know if it's going to be a long recession or a short one, deep or shallow, when it starts, how much of that is already priced in. So it's not a linear a linear thing where you know a recession's coming, so you're going to sell now. Uh, but for the bond market, obviously, the yield curve inversion, um, which uh, I have in here somewhere. Yeah, uh, it's after the PMIs. Yeah, it's 11, page 11. Um, the yield curve inversion tells you that the further the Fed is going to push things, the better bid the long end of the yield curve is going to be relative to the front end. Um, and so I think the opportunity for bond investors is there no matter what. It's just a question of where on the on the curve you want to be. So certainly long duration, I think, makes a lot of sense, like the, the 30 years at 4.5%. Uh, but even like a two-year yield at you know 4.7 is pretty attractive because even if the Fed stays up there longer, then you just roll that 4.7 into 5% two years from now or whatever it's going to be. So either way, I think the bond side offers some value, and and this is kind of the the takeaway I've I've been I've been um, ending my talks with in recent weeks, being in front of audiences, including your your audiences, um, is that you know the 60/40 paradigm worked beautifully for many many decades until this year, and this year neither the 60 nor the 40 has worked. I feel I have some good conviction that at least one of them is going to work. From here going forward, either the equity side, the 60, or the bond side, the 40. Unfortunately, I don't know which one it's going to be. So therefore, I want to have a little bit of both, or a little bit of each, um, uh, because I think one of them is going to start working, and that, and one is better than than none. And so at least it's a marginal improvement in that sense. Well, let's leave it on that note. It's a perfect note to end it on, and. Uh, very glad to see you set us up for a very important week um, in the markets and, and, and obviously across the political spectrum. You're in, Timur. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. I'll see you in Boston next week, or I'll see, see you Boston from Boston next, next week. week. Yes. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.